Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. On today's show, I visit food writer Andrew Friedman at the storied Gotham Bar and Grill in Greenwich Village. Friedman is a longtime collaborator with Gotham chef Alfred Potale, and we talk a lot about that restaurant's just seminal imprint on New York City and the New York City food scene. It's been there for 35 years. I mean, it's a pretty seminal place, and it's a real icon in the industry, and it's really interesting to chat about it. If you're enjoying Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. That'll help other people find the show. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and download other episodes like Tom Colicchio Heats Up Leftovers. Colicchio did work at Gotham Bar and Grill once upon a time. And last week's episode was Dan Barber Plants a Seed. Here's this week's conversation. Andrew Friedman eats at Gotham. I'm in Manhattan. I'm on 12th Street. And I'm in Gotham Bar and Grill, which is a, a temple of fine dining in many respects. Alfred Portal's restaurant. Um, and it is a powerhouse of classic, classic upscale New York. And I'm talking today with Andrew Friedman, uh, who most recently wrote Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, which is a really amazing book about chefdom in America and the kind of creation of the celebrity chefs and um, that era of 70s to 80s that sort of fomented into what we we consider chefdom today and and, uh, laid so many uh, so many trails for so many of us to follow in the in the next generation. But uh, Andrew, it's good to have you here. It's an honor to be here, Hugh. Thanks for having me. This is a this is an amazing restaurant. You've got a lot of history here. You've worked with Alfred throughout the years, mm-hmm. many projects. You co-authored three cookbooks with him. Three books. He was the first person who ever hired me, who paid me money to write anything. Wow, that's a good gig. Yes. yes. Opened uh, it was opened a lot of doors then. Yes. So your book came out about a year ago, and it it's a great read. Thank you very it's much. A really interesting read. Thank you on, very much. Hey, geez, I mean the stories of of Sheftim are crazy, but I I, th- I find the ascension the most interesting one to me is of the ascension of Wolfgang Puck in Los Angeles, which was so interesting from Mama's own. Uh, then opening up Spago and the the issues with the owner of Mamazon and who's really you know, retired into obscurity in South Carolina and now of all places or in Georgia or something like in that. In Georgia. He's near me. He's near you. He's yeah. right off uh, 85. Yeah, which yeah. Is, is strange that, that that's, it's, everything is so close in, in range. But that, and then Bar- uh, Barbara Lazaroff's uh, really impact on Wolfgang's career, his, his, mm-hmm. who uh, he later was married to. Um, and just, but the... It struck me as a lot of these stories in the book are really about um, the delicate catastrophe that re- the restaurant openings are. Yes. Um, and and then also paired with, in that day and age, the extreme amount of personal abuse that people are putting them, themselves through after shifts and um, addic- stories of addiction. And, uh, and it, it, it's struck me as the industry's really I think changed in a lot of regards oh yeah there's been a lot of impact um and people getting clean and but are they are chefs taking it more seriously now or they just have better systems or uh, why are we 
why are we in a better position in Sheftum today than we were back then? Because it just seems so frenetic. Um, I mean, I think there's so many ways to look at that question, um, you know, because I think a lot of people who hear that question might think you're referring to, you know, the stories of the reckoning or the Me Too movement, which I don't think you actually are. I think you're talking about the, the rigors of the, of the job, the way people, um, you know, drank and did drugs after hours. Um, which still the exists. way you got treated in a kitchen, you know, the, right. the yelling, screaming, pan throwing chef, which was totally accepted. Right. And I'm told things are actually better here in the U.S. than they are in some other countries today. But that culture still exists elsewhere. Yeah. And I think actually for all that we or most of us sort of lamented and make fun of it. I think in some ways it's sort of a extension of this litigious society we live in, right? We now are in a place where if you're going to call people about a name uh, on the line, if you're going to, certainly if you're going to throw something at them, definitely if you're going to hit them, which people think that's a joke. That happened a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, hey, chef, I think it might be a good idea if you did the dish this way. You might get slapped for that back in the day. Yeah, I ducked some pots back yeah. in the day. Um but that stuff here in the U.S. now with, with the legal system, with HR departments, with all the checks and balances, that's not okay. Whether morally, you can even set the morally aside. It's just not tenable. It's, it's, you could get sued into oblivion. But then a lot of older chefs say that the school of hard knocks uh, really creates better chefs who yes. understand the duress of the job. Well, but I think that's a I think that's a false war they're waging. That 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 that's a uh, that's such an emasculated version of chefdom that that doesn't need to exist. But then again, maybe it does. I think you know if I think back on uh, some of my women contemporaries or mentors, Tracy Desjardins leading Joachim Spiegel's restaurant in L.A. back in the day as a chef de cuisine as a woman uh, in her twenties. Um, I could see Tracy being a hard ass. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily an emasculated world in that way that I think is, is completely gone. But I think that now it's, it's in tandem with the litigious aspect of the world, but it's also with, I don't think you can staff a kitchen that way under that duress. Here's, here's what I think is interesting. You know, like, I want somebody once asked a doctor I saw being interviewed, you know, who experiences pain more intensely, men or women, right? And the doctor said, well, you can't know that, right? Because men have only experienced it as men and women have only experienced it as women. And I think by the same token, you know, I do know plenty of chefs and the stereotype would be that these are men, but it, you just mentioned Tracy Desjardins. I know plenty of women chefs. I had Victoria Blamey on my podcast, who at the time was the chef at Chumley's in New York. And she came up in fine dining restaurants, mostly in Europe and a little in Australia. And she believes that kitchens are too soft today. Not that she believes in the violent physical part of it, but that people need to be pushed. You know, certainly chefs of the generation I write about in my book, those people all believe whether they'll say it publicly or not, as, as Jack Nicholson says in A Few Good Men, all you did was weaken a country today. You know, like they believe cooks don't know what it is to push you know, really push. But it's but, funny. But what I was going to say is that generationally, right, the more the more enlightened, the kinder, gentler generation, I'm sure feels like they're getting great results, right? The older generation probably feels like the cooks in those kitchens 
can't push the way they did, but but, no the, one, but we'll never know. You will never know, and because I think they, uh, these people have completely different experiences. I think that's always a. Uh, 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 the the older generation always says that about the younger generation, regardless of the industry. Yeah, you didn't work hard enough. You're not. Right. You don't know how it used right. to be and push. Right. But it's funny that that type of regimented brigade system that's documented in the book and the advent of uh, uh, in the ascent of fine dining and the ascent of chefdom in the United States is really morphing out of in a lot of the examples morph out of. Uh, the dawning of the age of Aquarius and hippiedom and the 60s and early 70s, and the freewheelingness and, and, and the sort of, you know, releasing of your mind and all this stuff. And, and yet we get these hard-ass chefs coming out of it. That, that seems like a well, completely polar opposite of well, that type of mentality. Yeah, well, I mean, to me it's interesting. What you just referred to to me is very much the West Coast view of things and by and large kitchens were more evolved on the west coast than they were on the say from chicago east right so you did a lot of the kitchens in north first of all it's it's kind of singular among western culinary hubs the bay area back in this time i write about in the book was basically dominated by women I mean, it really was. If you look at it, there were, you know, you had Alice Waters and Judy Rogers and Joyce Goldstein and um, Barbara Tropp and Nancy Oakes and uh, Patricia Unterman. And sure, there were guys who got, you know, there was Jeremiah and there was Gary Danko. But like, it was, you could really argue that town was run by women, you know? And, And I remember interviewing Nancy Silverton for my book and saying, starting to ask her if she had any sort of horror stories as a woman back then. And she's cut me off and said, I know where you're going with this and I don't have any horror stories. And this is someone who started cooking in the 70s. Only in California, right? I think the East Coast, as much as, and I think this is why the food in California kind of progressed a little more quickly, right? Because it was ex- people expressing themselves and not following rules, not going to cooking school, not having formal training. The East Coast, to me, the, the more sort of archetypical East Coast chef was, you know, the agricultural blue-collar kid from, you know, somewhere in the tri-state area who got a job as a dishwasher, wasn't a very good student, um, was drawn to the kitchen first, and then sort of became obsessed with sort of mas- basically pleasing these French masters you know, happy to sort of learn the Escoffier playbook. You know, their creativity, a lot of ways, their creativity a... came a little later, you know. They weren't the hippies. They were the, they were the sort of, uh, you know, the academic, the people who I say were metabolically incompatible with formal education. And then, right? yeah, and A lot then, of the people in California were like in graduate school when they dropped out to become chefs. Yeah, I, I guess the, the, the more East Coast, well, Chicago to East Coast example of that that I can think of is the most famous sort of uh, academic dropout was Charlie Trotter. Right. Um, moving from academics, deep academics at the time, to doing very highfalutin food and um, and really starting off as almost like your first little pop-up chef. Right. Um, prior to that being a, a term. Right. Um, so, it, and it it's interesting that the East Coast chef phenomena, you're talking about, you know, the progress made while West Coast was sort of early on, you know, the nascency of the regionalism, California cuisine really bursting out with Wolfgang and, and then, um, 
people like Tracy and Alice Waters and all those folks really evoking something new and definitely um, uh, cooking from their own backyard. New York never really had that moment up until recently where you're cooking all from the green market. And not to diss New York at all, but, you know, the farmers of the green market are eight hours away up in the Hudson Valley yeah. near the Canadian border. So it's not exactly regional, regional food. It's pretty, that's, I mean, I can drive across three states in eight hours down south. So it's a different perspective of regionalism. So progress to me on the East Coast was made much through, um, uh, for lack of a better term, the ascendancy of ethnic food and the playfulness of other cultural food within New York mm -hmm. um, and Chicago and places like that. Whereas California, that that is more happening now. They've got all this other progress that they made in, in the development of California food and the regionalism of utilizing their larder there. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just... That's well, but the only popping up in my head. The only sort of gloss I would put on that is I think one of the things that did happen here, and I think it was an outgrowth of these young cooks and going over, doing what we would call a stage or a, you know an unpaid apprenticeship overseas, and seeing the amazing product, right? In there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Everybody's most people's reference points were French. Right, the the, the, the people in California yeah. were looking toward French. Yep. The people in New York wanted to start getting their hands on great product, not because of Chez Panisse. It was because of what they were seeing over in France, right? And I think the commitment to product was another big part of the New York story. Not, not that it came as from as close by as it did in California, but a guy like Larry Forgione working was with phones and out. finding superlative stuff from all over the country, and then having it shipped to JF. This is pre FedEx, right? Buzzy O'Keefe, the owner of the River Cafe, used to send a van to JFK Airport a few times a week to pick up Larry's shipments, right? Um, or, you know, Barry Wine had the quilted giraffe with his wife Susan, and at their home up, or their property in, in New Paltz, they had a farm that supplied their restaurant in the city. People don't remember, you know, they, they all remember California for product. They don't remember these sort of stories. Right. So I do think the commitment to getting their hands on great product and not using, as, as a lot of people said to me, you know, only what was available on the purveyor's order sheet was a big step in the quality of the, just the building blocks coming up in New York. So where is New York food now? What are we seeing happening within the city of New York that's really exciting to you? Uh, you know, for me... And does it have a future with rents and... Well, the rent know. thing is uh, crazy. Um, the staffing issue is real. You know, there's about to be a, a project opening up. Um, I'm blanking on the name. Over on the west side. Uh, Hudson Yards. Mm-hmm. And I think 35 restaurants are going to open there in a couple of months. Like, there's zero restaurants right now. And then we're all going to wake up one day. There's going to be 35 new restaurants. Where are those people? Where's, where are those people coming from I, who work there? You know, and the Red Cat closed after 18 years. Um, excuse me, 19 years almost. Jimmy Bradley. Jimmy Bradley, my old podcasting co-host um, and good friend. 
Um, Battersby closed in Brooklyn uh, on New Year's Eve. Uh, the Flatiron Lounge, not a restaurant, but a you know important bar, just shuttered. Uh, the Half King Bar and, and and restaurant in Chelsea closed, and it just keeps coming. I mean, it is really really crazy. Um, for me, everything you and I both just said. The upshot is, I think people who are spending a lot of money. <laughs> on restaurants have gotten very conservative in what they're doing. I think there's a lot of sameness in the food, to be honest. I think, um, you know, a couple of years ago, Eater did a thing. It was like it called every trendy, every trendy restaurant menu. Did you see it? No. It was a menu. Okay. And it was so on the, it was like the chicken for two. And then it had sides and it was like carrots that did a semester in Indonesia. And it had a kale salad at the time. And, and it really spoke to charred leek dust. This and, kind of, thing. but it yeah. spoke to the real, this sort of sameness that I think you see in the food, which I understand. I think people, a lot of people, are hedging their bets, right? Then I think, in in direct opposition to that, you're seeing the the food that really speaks to me, that's intriguing to me, are people who are sort of mining either their own or a different culture. I know that can get to be a hot topic, but you know, I look at like my friend, Jonathan Wu, unfortunately had to close his restaurant Fung Tu, but he was, you know, here was a guy who had worked at Per Se, who had worked for Eric Repair. Fung Tu was, uh, and then uh, I went there initially when they, when they opened early, but then they had to close for a long time because of some issue with water or something. Uh, no, it was like, a gas thing. They, no, gas. they stayed open through that. They were okay. a propane demo. That's right. Okay. Things. Yeah, crazy. The food was great, though. Um, brilliant. Yeah. You know, and here was a guy who was a Chinese-American, you know, and, and grew up with Chinese grandparents and took those reference points and took this formal training and created this utterly unique food, you know. Um, I look at, at what, like, um, uh, Enrique and Daniela are doing at Cosme and at uh, Atla, you know, that is tremendously exciting to me. I also look at what an American like Alex Stupak is doing with uh, Mexican food. Who is angrily cooking Mexican food. <laughs> but no, I find his food. Alex is a, I, I think to is me a what Tasmanian it, devil of Mexican food. I think what's going on at Empeon Midtown is just. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's brilliant. It's phenomenal. It's brilliant. And I think you're right um, about Atlas. Atlas just paving a way for a whole new understanding of traditional food in this beautiful modernist setting. Um, and it's small and it's tiny, but it's so, uh, it's inexpensive and yeah. yet it's so pro and so yeah. honed. Yeah. And, and that's the, that transference of fine dining ideals to something as simple as a breakfast, lunch and early dinner spot is kind of the future for me. It's like, how do you get, how do you get the eight turns you need in a New York restaurant to make it happen? Well, that's the classic example of how you do it progressively. Yeah, well, it also to me, the, the thing that I, I had this revelation, because I've been promoting this book, so I've been doing a lot of talks on the road, and they all have a Q&A, and I get the crystal ball question a lot. And, you know, I had this epiphany one day, which is, you know, why are there, there's too many restaurants, really, right? And what does that mean? What it means is that, it's not supply and demand, right? Like you go back to this time I write about in the book, there's, there were not that many really important, noteworthy restaurants, right? So it was hard to get into them. Um, uh, they were, it was a buyer's market in terms of staffing, right? It was a chef's market, not a cook's market. And that worked really well. And then there was a time, I think, where things were at the perfect equilibrium. 
the reason there are so many restaurants is not supply and demand. It's because there are so many young people who want to be in the restaurant business. There are people who want to be chefs. There are people who want to be sommeliers. There are people who want to be owner restaurateurs. There are more of those people in a city like New York than there are diners to patronize all the restaurants these people can open. So, you, you with me? So yeah, far? I'm with you. So, what I think that means is we're seeing it with all these closings. I think it means uh, people are more fickle than they used to be, the diners, because they, they can be. I think it means f- very few restaurants. We're sitting in a restaurant that's been here for 34 years. And I interviewed the guys, uh, Jeremiah and Fabian, who have Contra and Wild Air. And it was around the time that Gotham and Tribeca Grill, all these restaurants, were turning 30. And I said to them, do you envision something like that for yourselves? And they said, if we get through five years, and at the time, they were the hottest restaurant in town. If we get through five years, we'll feel like we did well. That's, I think, where the mindset is for younger they're folks. They're still doing pretty well, though. And they're, they're empire building, those guys, uh, while they're in Contra. And they've got Una Pizza Napolitana. Yes, they do. And, uh, but my point is I think is they've that got a couple of other things on the radar. But, but, I, I, but I think that that's a generational shift that um, they're, not, they're going for current and contemporary. They're not aiming for icon, icon status. No. But I also um, feel like what's going to happen is, I think, and we're already seeing this, really you're going to see an elevation of the quality and variety of chefs in what would traditionally be markets because people will, not everybody will be able to be in New York, San Francisco, Chicago. That's already happening. It's already happening. Um, I think you're going to start to see um, specializations. I think there's going to be chefs who are just pop-up chefs, you know? Maybe there's not a spot for them in a certain city, but they can have a show that goes on the road and they can sustain themselves that way. And people doing food trucks. And I think you might see people who are just breakfast and lunch people, you know, I think. Which are the most, to me is, you know, mostly in New York. It's like, how do you pay the rent just doing breakfast and lunch? That's not typically when people drink and isn't typically when you sell a $500 bottle of wine, which is really the saving grace of a restaurant like Gotham. I mean, it's, you know, is, is a, you know, a coaster, Merceau is an important sell yes. in the space of a week to yeah. keep them afloat. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. And but I, yeah, I agree that enthusiasm of young cooks and the the dream of opening up a restaurant is is what fuels this amount of restaurants that we have. But then the, the fear on that is that most young chefs and restaurateurs have no real idea of the economics of restaurants. Mm-hmm. And that they, you know, the book documents this well. It's kind of feast or famine for a lot of these people. And, you know, it's more often famine in the, in the case of uh, restaurant restaurants. I mean, we're, we're talking about 4 or 5% profit margins mm-hmm. in fine dining. Right. You know, if you make a buck at all. Right. So it's a really challenging landscape. And the funny thing is, it's not just New York. It's everywhere. I mean, rents in San Francisco are outlandish. Wow. Rents in L.A. are um, becoming outlandish. Rents yeah. in Atlanta are even high where I am. So it, it's it's interesting. So let's, uh, let's talk about celebrity chefdom. And to me, celebrity chefdom as a pervasive endemic plague... Uh, Plague. Uh, well, I, I I hate that term. So, which um, term? Celebrity chef. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it. Uh, I don't use it myself. It immediately hacks away uh, the the legacy and history that these people worked 
to get to and the amount uh, of hours that they've put into a craft that pays them little and then they appear on TV and immediately they're dubbed with a term that's just, to some is a term of endearment and to most is a term of abhorrence. Um, but it, it does, I don't think it exists in France. I don't think it exists as much in England. Yeah. And, but it's a thoroughly, is it just in the States in our quest to make people B-list and C-list celebrities that we, you know, why does it exist here? I think so much. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think part of the answer maybe is that at the time that that term came into existence, right? When did it come into existence? existence i'd say i mean is I mean, it really it, with the advent of tv i mean i uh, not the advent of tv but but of food television I mean, is well it, i think that's when it went is kind it of Emerald supernova and bam yeah and, the early 90s was when i think it really started spreading i remember i'm first aware of it maybe in the 80s with there weren't many and and retroactively i mean you would say wolfgang puck was and paul right. Perdome was and jeremiah tower was but um, you know, I remember in the old Zagat Guide, there was a category in the back. You know, it was like, you know, meat for a drink, um, good brunch, celebrity, celebrity chef. chef. That was actually a category of the restaurants. Of which my restaurants have gotten that. So, but to me, um, I think the notion of an American chef was still a novelty, right? And the profession here was thought of as such a dirty, blue-collar, uh, unskilled, menial kind of thing that I think just calling them chefs almost didn't get across the sea change that had happened here. So it needed a... Does that make sense? It yeah. needed another modifier. It needed something like... Cele- you know, celebrity made it sound glamorous. Celebrity made it sound clean. Celebrity made it sound lucrative. Um, celebrity made it sound like you'd want to meet these people, you know? Whereas so in Europe, that, that I think, years earlier, um, that would not have been the case. But by the time the change was happening here... People like Paul Bocuse and Alain Chappelle and Michel Girard, these people had become yeah, huge Michel, superstars. Yeah, Girard and all those people. But, they, you know, in, in France now is, uh, you know, and but that that's an aging generation of quasi-celebrity chefs in, in France that are well-known. But is Anne-Sophie Peek, is she a celebrity in France? I don't think they would. I mean, uh, she's a, she's, I, think, I, I think she is. She is, isn't. but I don't think that you would use that term over there. No, I don't think you yeah. would either. Yeah, for anybody, I just think it's almost superfluous. Yeah, yeah. It, to me, it's they're held in more professional, higher professional regard. And as soon as we get a celebrity status in the United States, it's kind of a it. It doesn't give any sort of credence to the the brilliance and wherewithal of that person in their given career. I only use that term for people who don't actually cook. Like a Guy Fieri? Uh, I mean, he cooks. Yeah, I mean, no, someone who I don't even want to name. And I, I've actually changed my opinion on Guy a lot. A lot of people life. have. Yeah, I think he's, uh, yeah. People like him. He's grown on I don't know him. I've never met him. Stylistically, I think he's a little challenged still. <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, that that's fine. No, but what I mean is... I th- he needs to go on Queer Eye <laughs> and get restyled. No, yeah. I, like, I okay. think that would be a great... I mean, that would be... 
So do I. I just, hey, uh, we could all do with that. Guys, people talk to queer eyes. People <laughs> make this happen. But uh, what I was, uh, but I think it's also a distinctly American thing. You know, this idea that celebrity. all of a sudden, yes, yeah, celebrity. That's like you know one of the things that's like the American dream. You know, and uh, there was something to me about the idea, of, and also the idea that food here didn't have the respect that it already had in a place like France, you know? Yeah. Food itself was coming was, up. Food yes. was becoming... And, like a, and whether food is even held in reverence in the United States is is still up for debate. I mean, well, if you definitely want to talk about France. Really, right. I mean, if you want to talk about just the raw numbers. And, you know, I remember interviewing Mr. Stupak uh, last year, a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, we were talking about his his style and this and that and at some point he said and by the way most 99% of restaurants in the world don't care about anything we're talking about and he's right and he's right and most diners don't either right it's what Mary Sue Milliken calls the 1% of restaurants that that you and I are talking about right now Um, but you know the food here was becoming almost celebrity you know a dish like Paul Prudhomme's blackened redfish that was almost a celebrity dish you know it was a whole sea change in just all and of at the it. point that point in time it was wild redfish so they were fished into obscurity yes. and now they're all farmed yes uh, so it's funny that you know celebrity status of a dish can get uh, a whole industry in trouble uh, you know the popularity of swordfish in the 80s well, you know, we had mm-hmm. to stop cooking swordfish for 10 15 years to let the population yeah. come back so it's amazing that those things can happen even just covering a 1% mar- uh, 1% situation um well can i ask you can i am i allowed can i yeah, ask you a you question can ask me, yes. well you mentioned the celebrity chef thing and your discomfort with it right you mid-career found yourself all of a sudden on television right and you just said your restaurant was in zagat had that term yeah it had that term dubbed to it did yep. that did that really does it bother you personally i, I think it do you it, take it as an insult it it Look, the the amount of time that I've spent on TV being a chef is probably 0.5% of my working career. Right. It has gotten me more attention than anything else I've ever done. Yep. Um, do I think that is, uh, do I feel blessed for that attention? Eh, sure, whatever. Am I proud of it? No, I'm proud of the other 99.5% of what I've done. Yes. Um because I th- I think it 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 means a lot more. I I do not begrudge anything, um, but yeah, it is it is diff- you know mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. We have food now presented in front food. of us. Thank you, gentlemen. A Gotham Bar and Grill, and it's all its beauty. Yeah. Uh, we. It looks like we have some sort of a carbonara. That's pasta carbonara. Pasta carbonara. Yes. And then we have a brilliant steak uh, with beautiful crisp matchstick fries, a bone marrow flan, roasted garlic, little tiny baby carrots, classic Bordelais, um, and uh, we're getting presented with wine. We're living it up here. This is not bad, right? Is this is not bad. Yet? No. <laughs> Let's talk about the timelessness of food and the chef's idea of do you constantly need to create as a chef? I mean, you're not a chef, but is there a need to constantly 
for the American diner or for a, from a chef's perspective of talking to all these people you've talked to over the years, it, there always seems to be a difference between there's a camp of chefs who have a deep affection for the past and there is a camp of chefs who have a deep affection for the future. Mm. Which one's more important? Or are they both? I think it's case by case. And I also think for some of these people, whether they know it or not, the, the, their present is the future. Um, uh, you know, I look at, um, I look at somebody like uh, Jonathan Waxman, right? Who's Known for his chicken. At but Barbuda. also has been doing very much the same style of food for forever. Since he did at Jams back for, in the day. Since he did at Michael's before that in Santa Monica in the late 70s. And um, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that you, you, know, you go into a place like Barbudo and, you know, that food is, could have been a lot of it. I mean, some of those dishes were at Jams. You know, and and it's not it's very classic in that way. And I think he just kind of hit this track of timelessness, you know, uh, just kind of being who he was and following his nose. I think you look at what we're eating here today is very timeless. This is timeless food. I mean, this this steak dish that you described has been on the menu uh, I think it was originally with onion rings and not with these shoestring potatoes since this restaurant opened. Or I shouldn't say since it opened. And since I'm Al- since a- Alfred came in a year later. Right. Um, and, and I'm digging into pasta carbonara, which is thoroughly. But, but that's the difference between, I think, classic food that's timeless is that it's only timeless and sales-worthy if they nail it. And simple food that's been done for 100 years is not so simple. I mean, yeah. nailing a pasta carbonara is not the simplest thing no. to do because there's so many things that can go wrong with simple food. Yeah. But this is a classic example of food that, that deserves to be on the mantle for a really long time to come. Well, the other thing is we all take for granted now, right? This is really interesting, right? We have, you know, the steak with the Bordelais sauce, as you said, and the marrow mustard custard. Now, we have a pasta with this dish, right? Mm-hmm. Now. There was a time where this was a radical notion or the idea that, you know, there's a, a, a there's a probably on the menu, uh, a first course available of risotto, you know, in this restaurant. Right. There was a time where that I remember when the late great Jonathan Gold, when he was writing for Gourmet, wrote a, an appreciation of the Gotham and said, you know, uh, if, if you're appreciative of something like if you're appreciative of the fact that. You know, you can see on menus around this country now risotto and pasta and things with, you know, maybe bok choy. And you can thank the Gotham for that. Right. And there's something that seems inevitable about these things when they come to pass, you know, like they're 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 sort of radical at the time. But there's also something that seems inevitable. It's like art. Right. Right. There's something that just seems right about it. Um, and unforced about it. But there was a time where this combination that we're having was was, was kind of new and, and exciting yeah. and, and groundbreaking. And, and pushing the envelope. And now it's sort of, sort of just what we expect in an American restaurant. But, the, the, yeah, the, the, it, yes, to me, this is a classic American restaurant. And New York's got so many of them. Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, Gotham, Kraft. These are all classic American restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um it, but it's it's interesting to to see where food is going. I would say I am of the 
type of chef who reveres the past more than the future. You I'm, do? Yeah. How do you mean that? You mean you like to sit down to a class, whether it's whatever whatever my, country it comes from, you like to sit down to a traditional meal? My quest, yeah, in a lot of ways. But, I mean, I like eating outside of that parameter, but I like cooking in the I mean, my... My still my quest my until I die is to make the perfect roast chicken. I make a really good roast chicken. It's awesome. It's beautiful, but it's still a quest to better it. And and but that's that's a style of cooking that's been around for 400, 500 years. Mm-hmm. Um, versus you know watching Grant Ackett's cook at Alinea is more of a push towards the future right. and. Or Farron and people like that. So yeah. it's it's very it's a different way of looking at it. And I think both perspectives need need to be always respected and understood. Um, but I think that we we have a dangerous situation sometimes when a lot of young chefs just want to push the envelope without understanding the truth uh, mm-hmm. about the history of food. Um, so it is interesting in the book, you know, uh, about that day uh, those that that era of partying chefs and that and what that big get and what what happened and what's happening now and consequences of actions that are being taken into account um you know we've got a lot of famous restaurateurs and chefs in in new york who uh, are slowly losing empires or barely hanging on to them because yeah. of things that they have done uh, that are thoroughly reprehensible. And uh, so it's it's interesting to see how this is changing our industry and making it. I thoroughly believe that it's going to make the industry better. There is a time of tumult and coming and of... Uh, recalibration. Recalibration and yeah. bringing people to real justice. Um, and some of these people are people historically, I, I you know, it's difficult to, to watch people... Uh, uh, who, uh, who did these actions like raping people and things who you once held in relatively high esteem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really painful it, it, to to see that demagoguery come to the surface. And I guess we were just ignoring it for way too long or just pushing it under the rug or something. But are you seeing a change in, in, in things? Well... I mean, for me, I don't know if people believe this, but uh, other writers have said it, and it was for sure true of me. I never saw this behavior. I saw people drunk, sure. I saw people strung out, sure. But this sort of abuse that that has come to light in the last, you know, year plus, I never saw it. You know, I I lived uh, about 10 blocks north of the Spotted Pig, Around the time that it opened, I profiled April for the O O the Oprah magazine. Right. And because I'd written that piece and I interviewed Ken Friedman, I could I could get in there without a reservation. I mean, they didn't take reservations. I could get in there. Um, I was often invited upstairs to the third floor after dinner to hang out. Right. And what is now referred to as the rape room. Um, but when I did those when I did that, I my my joke was like, and I'm dating myself, you know, is that it was probably like Hogan's Heroes. Like when I was coming, you know, they would, you know, uh, put the bed down over the tunnel and turn the credenza around, and you know, I never saw any of this stuff. I, I'm not going to say I was shocked when the stories came out because, you know, I used to I, be, mean, I used I, to be in the film business. I'm not. I mean, I'm. I know what people are capable of. I was shocked that people who I knew personally a little bit. 
you know, Mario Batali is someone who had always been incredibly gracious to me, generous, gave me two interviews for this book. Yeah. You know, I didn't even go through his assistant to schedule them. He, I mean, that's really nice, you know. Um, uh, and then these things came out, and it was a, a sea change in my view of some of these people. It's funny that the, the, the way that a lot of them are addressing it is just by trying to hide from it. And I don't think you can hide from it. I think that uh, no. I think the first step is really public, publicly plotting out um, a, a real road to your own personal salvation and how you're going to fix yourself and that that has to be shown to people. You also have to really genuinely apologize in this situation. You have to find a place of deep and, humility. And, yeah. I mean, the term I use, it's a 12-step term, is, is amend. These people have to make amends. These people need to, not, and I don't mean in an interview where you just say it, I mean, they need to, in my opinion, at least try to get with some of these aggrieved individuals and really lay it out, you know, and, and really find a place of just, uh, you know, uh, of offering an apology, of seeking forgiveness, of you may not get it, but that's, a, you know, that's, that's, you don't control that part of it. I think anybody who's done, you know, you and I are sitting here, we've never, we've communicated on social media, we've never met before, but I'm sure you'll agree with this, for much smaller offenses than what these guys have done, right? There is an apology process that we're all familiar with. Right. You know, you call the person up or you go and get face to face and you offer an apology and you either explain yourself or you say you don't know why you did it or whatever the truth of it is. You ask them if they hope you hope they can forgive you. That's the only thing that's in your control. Right. Yeah. yeah but that yeah. is also an amazing, you know, there are countries in this world where they have, um, you know, apology ceremonies for atrocities, you know, and the, uh, an apology is actually a deeply meaningful thing to people. Uh, may not be enough, may not change We've anything. We've seen a lot of bad apologies in the last bad few apologies. years. Yeah. Yeah. Apologies written by publicists I and crisis communications teams and lawyers. Right. But, you know, in, in Friedman's case, Ken Friedman's case, not Yes, Andrew thank Friedman. you. No relation. Yes. Uh, I, I think that there's just a skirting around of it and an attempt to just continue making money doing it. And I think that's, that is a, a complete failure on his own personal part. And it's a extraordinarily uh, crass and, and unfeeling towards the victims involved. So, quietly, I hope he loses everything. But, yeah, that's the c'est la vie. There's a comeuppance in life, and you have to answer these things. So Now, do you have any hesitancy to say something like that? No. 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 It's ever come back to bite you? No. I mean... You know what I mean. It's so... Yeah. It's so, um, it's so unusual, I think, for somebody to offer... Because this is kind of like, you know... Uh, the, the chef community, it's kind of like high school, right? Everybody kind of knows each yeah. other. It's, you know, I, a uh, lot of people don't want to rock the boat, even, it, even with this stuff. I mean, this. I, admi uh, I this admire. This podcast it. is called Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, so I'm not too shy of. I, I mean, you know, I, I just never want to say things that, that uh, say things that are reactive. Yeah. Um, and not, not thought through. You know, I've thought long and hard that I thoroughly believe that. You know, uh, Bobby plays an egomaniacal prick. I just that's what I view because of his reactions to me on what we've you know, when we've met each other, that he's dismissive and walks away and is kind of rude. You know, but I don't feel bad saying that. I don't think it affects me. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and that's kind of out of left field. But I, you know, I don't. Think, <laughs> I, 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 I actually you know, get along fine with him. But yeah, yeah I don't know why. It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just competitiveness. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so I'm. No, I don't think these things. I, I've always been known for re- relatively taking a stand and uh, and projecting my thoughts and saying what I believe in. Yeah, I ain't I, scared. I ain't scared. I turned a corner on that in the last year. Right. You know, I'm now willing to say how you truly feel. Yeah, you know what turned the corner for me? This will sound. I haven't said this in an interview, but it's true, and maybe it'll sound corny. I hope it doesn't. Uh, when we lost Tony Bourdain. Yeah. I thought, you know what, that he was, I mean, among, I didn't know him well. He was so good to me when, if I ever needed something, we weren't like buddies. I didn't, we didn't hang out. No, I'm the same way, but But he he was very good to me. Uh, But he was, A, he was really good to me, which I appreciate, but B, he was willing to call out BS when he saw it. And even if it was someone he had a history of friendship with, and, you know, I don't know how you felt about Joshua Zersky, but I, you know, I I was friends with Joshua Zersky. And Josh, what, what people loved him or hated him, um, but you know he was willing to kind of lay it out there. And I feel like we've lost people who were willing to just say what they felt, you know, to call out BS where they. Azerski was interesting because I think Azerski had a lot of detractors when he was around, and I don't yeah. think I don't think Anthony really had Bourdain had many detractors at all. I think he, uh, he was pretty much universally beloved as yeah. Uh, but he was also known to be a thoroughly uh, uh, puzzling human, yes. uh, troubled human in a lot of ways. Well, and also a provocateur. Yeah. I think there were yeah. times where I definitely had the impression he just woke up bored one day and decided to start a fight because it would be, you know, it would be fun. There are people but, uh, who are uh, very happy to call people out who they believe are affecting our industry. Kenji Lopez. uh, Very open. Who is very open and somebody I respect a lot just because he's such a scientific mind when it comes to food and and chefdom. And he recently opened up a place I think that's been very successful and it's really interesting to follow him and his tweets and things like that. But he is very vehemently Goes after Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, he for, went. I saw a thing the other day about Marco yeah. Pierre White and, and Marco Pierre White. He tied that to Gordon. But you know, Tony to me, the moment I would have been fascinated to see because they were friends was when Gabrielle Hamilton stuck her toe in the water of taking over the Spotted Pig. That would have been a fascinating moment to me. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That exa- was a really interesting. I don't know exactly what would have happened. I was on a panel in uh, Aspen Food and Wine this year, and Tony had passed away a week before. Gabrielle uh, Hamilton was just coming up with all of the uh, drama about her taking over the Spotted Pig without doing real due diligence as to how that would affect her and her community and her partner, Chef. Um, And it was probably the most uncomfortable uh, panel I was on because Gabrielle was on it, as was Will Godara from 11 Madison. Um, And it was just... uh, it was it was a difficult difficult thing to be involved with, mm-hmm. but um, and I yeah I would treasure hearing Anthony's reactions to that whole kerfuffle. I think it would have been fascinating. Yeah, <sighs> Anthony, 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 such a sad story. Such a brilliant mind though. Um, I really miss the. Uh, the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature um, because I could find old 
articles really easily, mm -hmm. and I find Google is not great for that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a system, and I could go look up, and then you get the microfiche. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're under 40 years old, you have no idea what yeah, I'm talking like about right now. Right. And I, I'm uh, actually wondering where you're micro, going with this. Microfiche. Well, you talk about Alice Waters' columns uh, in yes. the San Francisco Express Times, yes. which was called Alice's Restaurant. Yes. And those are something that I'd love to read. I just wish that somebody would republish them. So, Alice, get on that. Um, let's talk about the Bocuse door and the idea of culinary Olympics and uh, culinary competition in the realm of sort of like Davis Cup tennis or you mm -hmm. know, Davis Cup golf or whatever it is, uh, Ryder Cup golf. Um, I The only time I really delved into the Boku's Door, which is the yearly... Is it every year? Every other year. Every other year, Culinary Olympiade held in Lyon, France. Uh, I was working on a... Ancillary show to then Top Chef Masters that was called Battle of the Sous Chefs. And it was an online show, and I would do it very, very late at night in L.A., and I was out there for about a month working on it. And so I came home one night, and I had been up for 24 hours straight, and I was extraordinarily strung out, not because of drugs, just because of exhaustion. Wired. Yeah. And so I bring up online a live feed to the Boku's door. And for the next six hours straight, I just tweeted nonsense about the Boku's tour. And in reading it the next couple of days, it was the strangest commentary I could ever come up with. But it was kind of funny and kind mm -hmm. of interesting. But I find the Boku's tour to be, it's interesting to me, but it's so frenetic, but it's so goofy as well. Mm -hmm. It's like these masterful platters that are yeah. like 10 feet by 12 feet of like fish carvings and yeah. stuff like that that show definite acumen for food and the top you know, techniques of chefdom, but does it matter? Does it matter? Well, uh, I think it depends who you're talking to. Well, first of all, if you're, if you're a European chef, that it's still a big deal over there. It's you know, huge over there. It's yeah. huge. I mean, there was a guy, um, Rasmus Kofed, who won bronze, came back, and the training, I mean, the commitment to training is crazy. It's, yeah, they recreate the whole kitchen for you, and you But you spend months brutal, and months and yeah. months and months, but he won bronze once, and then he came back two years later and got silver, took a year, took a competition off, then came back and won the gold. This guy, this guy suited up three times, and amazingly did better each time, you know. Uh, I interviewed a guy from Australia when I was doing my book, who had placed 12th, wanted to come back, Went through the whole thing again, came back. You know what he placed? 12th again. <laughs> All for that. So I, but, I but so for Europeans, it's a huge deal. Leah Lindstrom, you know, this chef from, uh, uh, um, oh gosh, why am I blanking? Anyway, European chef, she still has, or at least did last I checked, was still serving the menu that, she, that won her the award. At the second Boku's door in the late 1980s. So this at is her like restaurant. 30, or year, 30 years later. At her restaurant. Still serving. It's still a thing. Yeah. That's great. Um, so I, I, uh, I did a show in Canada called Iron Chef Canada. And it, yeah. It's a newer rendition of Iron Chef. And I was one of the Iron Chefs. And so the second competition, I'm facing this guy um, named Alex Chen who's in Vancouver, and he was the head of the Canadian contingent of Boku's Tour, and I think they placed sixth or fifth or something like that. I had no idea. So who this guy was. Mm -hmm. I had no idea he was on the, because, led the Boku's Tour team for the Canadians. We start this culinary competition for an hour on Iron Chef, 
this guy was a maniac. Um, I felt like I was, you know, playing with Duplo blocks on the other side as this guy was creating, yeah. like, you know, uh, thermonuclear dynamics. Um, it's incredible what they do. Uh, you know, uh, well, I don't, you know, I wrote this book, Knives at Dawn, about the Volcus Door. The guy who was competing for the U.S. that year was Timothy Hollingsworth. He's the main character in my book, who, who was just the on the final table. the chef under Thomas Keller at the, French, at the laundry French Laundry for years. And now has Otium in L.A. Yeah, Otium in L.A. And, and is a gem of a human, too. Yeah, so. no, Timmy was great. But, um, you know, to the Americans, I think what's interesting, when you go generationally, this actually ties back to my book in a funny way, because the relationship with the French was so fraught, right? I think there was such an inferiority complex among chefs of Keller's era. You know, I asked him what's point blank, because we've now won the gold. Right. And I said, did you ever think you would be over there representing the American team and winning medals? You know, and he said, never. Like it was he couldn't have even yeah. In, in yeah. imagined that when he was a young cook, you know, going over there and, and getting the treatment you got as a young American. I mean, young Americans got treated terribly in French kitchens. You know, you go, they were the peelers of the onions, you know, at, at, but not just that, like at staff meal, there are all these stories like. You know, you'd sit down to staff dinner and somebody would stick a bottle of ketchup next to you, you know, or they'd give you a can of Coke and say, this is Vin American, you know, or they would call you Ronald Reagan. Boy, I can't think of suffering through abuses like that. Stop. That seems pretty soft, but yeah. But I mean, uh, to go from that to like going, so I think for somebody like Thomas to go over there as the president of the American Foundation, right. come back with gold, is a huge thing. I, I'm a little puzzled, although they, they tell me, people like Gavin Kazin, who's very involved, and you know Phil Tessier, who got the silver, who's still right. involved in a coaching capacity. And Danielle is still very involved. Yeah, these people all tell me it's very meaningful to them. I, I don't really know why the younger generation cares that much, because I feel like, I don't feel like we need that kind of validation anymore. As Americans, yeah, I, I think that you that know, we have of, we yeah. have three Michelin star restaurants. We have people coming from Europe to stage at a place like Alinea. You know, what, like why do we need why do we need that like pat on the back? You know, yeah, why man. do we need that seal of approval? It may have jumped the shark, so to speak. Well, this food was phenomenal at Gotham Bar and Grill. It's so classic. And the steak just has this beautiful char to it. So what was this food evoke to you? What's the... Well, so I have to... I was going to thank you for that. So, you know, the first person who ever hired me to write anything was Alfred. Uh, I go Portal, to who's the Alfred chef Alfred Portali, who was the yeah. chef here at Gotham. I go... I was his publicist. I was trying to be a screenwriter back in the 90s. And as a, I had a day job working for a PR firm. Alfred and the Gotham were one of my clients. He knew I was trying to be a writer... And he let me co-write with him the Gotham Bar and Grill cookbook, which I thought would be a one-time lark. This is what indirectly, over the years, led to me doing what I do now. And we would work downstairs in the office at night here. And this was when I first started to get my look at the inner workings of sort of the chef world. You know, I'd be down there with Alfred interviewing uh, periodically, a sous chef would sometimes come in with a dry run of a new dish that Alfred had kind of sketched out. Chef, taste this. Taste, taste this. this. And Alfred would give them feedback. I yep. would get to taste it. I thought that was really cool. And more often than not, we would end the night by having dinner. Sometimes we would go to another restaurant. But very often at 9.50 or 9.55, we would run up to the dining room and we would be the last order in. And you would be in. that ticket and, that yeah, comes well, in the very end of service. Yes, but we didn't do it after 10. You know, they sat till 10. 
Uh, and almost always it was a two half orders of pasta, whatever the pasta of the day was, and a steak split. So this is an incredibly provocative uh, dinner yes. for me. And also the PR firm, I, we're on 12th Street here in the city. The PR firm I worked for was on 20th Street. And my shabby little rent-controlled one-bedroom apartment with mice was on 8th Street. So this Which was... he will sublet to you for $8,000 a month. But this was on my walk... This was on my walk home. I mean, yeah. this restaurant was to me. I mean, I come in here, and it's like I did. We and I did three books with Alfred, so uh, I had this exact meal we're having a million times, never during the day, um, you know. But also, uh, you know, I know every inch of this place. I'd be totally comfortable. Nobody in the kitchen would know me anymore. But walking through the kitchen back to the office to say hi to the staff, some of whom are, I'm sure, still there. And, um, yeah, so it's just... But that's uh, what great restaurants it's, should it's have been It's a real homecoming for, everyone. for me. I mean, it's uh, is the... I mean, back to the real point of a restaurant. It's a place of respite. Yes. And this is just such an iconic one. So yeah. thanks for uh, thanks for setting this up. Oh, please. Thanks for having me on your first season. Yeah. Well, you guys, everybody should go buy and read Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, which is out in hardcover and in paperback pretty much now. And... Uh, because it's a great read and uh listen to andrew's podcast as well but andrew friedman thanks for uh thanks for being on thanks for having me here awesome i hope we stirred the pot we did this episode of hugh atchison stirs the pot was taped on location by brian blum at gotham bar and grill in greenwich village you should go Scott Porch produces the show, and Mackenzie Mazell edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and come back on Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hugh Atchison, where I am endlessly not that fascinating, but, uh, you know, caustic and weird. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Peace well.